Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the first ever episode of the Mountain and Prairie podcast. Thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. First of all, just to give you a quick background on who I am, professionally, I'm a ranch broker who specializes in the sale of recreational, agricultural, and investment ranch properties throughout the Rocky Mountains. I also do a good bit of work as a land conservation consultant working with Colorado Land Trust to help them permanently protect ranches and land throughout the state. When I'm not working, I love spending time in the outdoors and up high in the mountains, fishing, running, climbing, hiking, skiing, camping, pretty much any of the sports that make the American West such a special place to live. Through my work and hobbies, I meet tons of interesting, passionate people whose work is helping to shape the future of the American West, whether that work is related to land, agriculture, water, writing, government, sports, the list goes on and on and on. So I had the idea to start this podcast to help shine a spotlight on some of these fascinating individuals, to learn more about their work and the issues surrounding their work, and also to learn about them personally, their backgrounds, their interests, why they've chosen their respective careers. All these people are passionate, energetic, and committed to their work, so I know you'll really enjoy hearing their stories. But before we get started, I want to thank our very first sponsor, Mountain Khakis. Mountain Khakis is an outdoor apparel company based out of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and in my opinion, they make some of the best outdoor clothing on the market today. I've been wearing Mountain Khakis almost every single day for the last 10 years. No joke, I own their jeans, their pants, their shorts, their shirts. It's really hard to find me on a day when I'm not wearing something made by Mountain Khakis. I've found that their clothing line, all of it, offers the perfect balance of durability, versatility, and a professional look. In my job as a ranch broker, my days can be so varied. I can start out one day hiking around on a ranch, which involves climbing over barbed wire fences, roaming around in barns, walking through thick underbrush, jumping across creeks, and then later in the day, I have to go downtown in Denver to meet with an attorney or a banker at some fancy office building. Amazingly, these pants are appropriate for all those scenarios, plus more. Mountain Khaki's tagline is built for the mountain life, which I really do think it perfectly describes all of their clothing. If you're listening to this podcast, odds are you have a life centered around the outdoors or at least are very interested in the outdoors. So I highly encourage you to check them out. For guys, I personally recommend the original mountain pant. They're durable yet stylish and perfectly suited for any activity from working outside working on a ranch, working in the yard, to going out to dinner or to a cocktail party with your friends and family. You should check out their website, mountaincackies.com, and also check out all their social media. There's some great photos of the outdoors, more information on their clothing, but they're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those channels. And also keep an eye on, on, keep an eye on all my social media because I'm going to be doing a giveaway in the next few days uh, with a ton of Mountain Khaki gift cards. So Mountain Khakis, I really do appreciate the support. Thanks for helping me out. And go buy Mountain Khakis. So our guest today is Eric Glenn. Eric is the executive director of the Colorado Cattlemen's Agricultural Land Trust. Eric is a very interesting and hardworking guy who's completely committed to protecting working ranches throughout the state of Colorado. We cover a wide range of topics in this episode. We talk about how the Cattlemen's Land Trust is different from other land trusts, the importance of keeping ranches in agricultural production, some of the very basic 
aspects of land conservation. What does conservation mean? What is land trust? What is a conservation easement? Uh, we talk about how Colorado is leading the way nationally in land conservation. We talk about some advice that Eric has for young people who may want to start a career in land conservation, as well as Eric's personal background and family history in ranching, which is very, very fun to to talk about. We also get some of his favorite books, documentaries, some of his favorite places in the West. We talk about a lot, and I think you'll find it very interesting. So here we go, Eric Glenn. All right, you want to go? Sure. All right, well, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. And uh, so I guess the first question I would have, which is just very pretty basic, but you know, when you meet somebody whether it's at a networking event or just walking down the street and they ask you what you do, what do you tell them? I tell people when asked that question that I conserve what makes Colorado great and what attracts people to come to Colorado, and that's our natural beauty, it's our open spaces, it's our scenic views, it's our working ag lands, and uh, that's basically what I start the conversation with. And it's a fun job. It's exciting. And people relate to that more so than saying, well, I do conservation easements, which Mm -hmm. is kind of boring and dry. But the outcome has so many great benefits to the people living in the state. It has so many great benefits to the people that that pursue the conservation easement for their property. Mm -hmm. So you're with Colorado Cattlemen's Agricultural Land Trust. And t- tell me about that organization. How did it come to be? What just kind of the the background on it? What you do specifically in to to preserve these places? So the Colorado Cattlemen's Ag Land Trust was founded in 1995 by the membership of the Colorado Cattlemen's Association, and it was really founded to serve uh, void in the conservation community, and that void was largely. Nobody understood working agricultural land, working agricultural landowners, what their needs were, how they operated, uh, and understood the differences of a working operation in terms of how do we proceed about getting conservation done on the ground in a situation like that. Mm-hmm. And so, Because in the past or before that, it had been, let's conserve this open space, this piece of forest or this river corridor and take, and that people thought that agriculture and conservation were mutually exclusive. Is that I think there's generally? still some of that thinking yeah. out there that conservation is more preservation. Yeah. And that we're trying to do what you do with the national park and you just set it aside and, and, and nothing really happens. People mm-hmm. go see it, uh, but you, nothing specific from a production standpoint happens necessarily on those properties when really conservation is about ensuring that we have the resources necessary to continue to allow the country and the state to be prosperous and the way you do that is by ensuring the lands continue to be able to be worked be that for agriculture or be it for uh, some other uh, potential use Mm -hmm. and the membership of the Cattlemen's Association saw a void, they saw a need, and 
They took a very progressive action in 1995 to establish a land trust. It was the first land trust established by a livestock, mainstream livestock industry association. And um, when they started it, they thought, well, maybe we'll have four or five conservation easements um, by 2016, and here we are in 2016, we've done 292 conservation easements and conserved more than 463,000 acres of working lands in Colorado. Not bad. <laughs> um, and and so when you say land trust, well, well, first of all, let's just back up to talk about land conservation. I think when, when people hear the term land conservation, people in Colorado or back east or, or wherever, I think that word has a lot of meaning, a lot of different meanings to different people. I think some people would mean saving a, a wild species of some animal in the rainforest. And then, you know, f- for you guys, it's it's agricultural land. How do you define land conservation? Well, I define it as ensuring that there are always places that are open that aren't going to be touched by uh, growth and and development of man Mm -hmm. and that these places are places where you can continue to grow food, Mm -hmm. where you can continue to uh, see wildlife in its natural setting, where Mm -hmm. you can continue to see these open vistas. And and what it, I think, largely is is that we ensure that, that the West and that the United States continue to be these places where you get this great balance between growth and prosperity and development and open spaces that oftentimes, so oftentimes, create the inspiration for for uh, growth and prosperity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really think that we see economic prosperity, we see growth, we see uh, great progress in economics because people are inspired by openness. They're not... Mm-hmm confined necessarily by artificial walls and boundaries in in nature yeah nature is open it's endless and gives people the opportunity to dream and so having that balance ensuring that balance is always there so critical i think for the long-term success uh, and prosperity of our country yeah i agree with you and i think it's you know if you look at uh you go back to like teddy roosevelt is the as you know, I like Teddy Roosevelt. You do too. Um, goes back to you know he he his whole deal was conserving these natural resources for the greater good, um, and and that's I think that's one thing that the United States has, or it is one thing the United States has that no other country really has. Just these vast natural resources that you know preserving them so they just sit there and, and do nothing. You know, it's arguable whether that's the the right way to to go. Um, and so to kind of get down into the, the details of how you go about conserving these properties. So you say we conserve this, this ranch. Can you explain exactly what that means? How do you conserve a ranch? Well, I think the critical point to understand is that conservation is voluntary. And that is what I think makes it such a great success story is that you've got families, you've got landowners who think to themselves that this property should always be left in this open state, this productive state, and they're willing to forego 
for the future or for their future or for the land's future owners forego potentially some pretty significant economic uh, economic opportunity in exchange for ensuring that we can maintain that balance that we were talking about, that there's always this these open places, mm-hmm. that there's always places to grow food and fiber that we need to really feed a growing population. And, and so for, uh, for the folks listening out there, I think it's critically important to understand that people make this choice voluntarily mm-hmm. uh, when they choose to go down that path and, and do conservation then they look for a land trust, they look for a government agency that specializes in conservation to partner with to then go through the mechanics of actually conserving and encumbering the property. And and that's a real, I mean, it's basically nuts and bolts. It's a real estate transaction where mm-hmm. somebody goes through similar process to selling uh, a property. You go through a bunch of due diligence, uh, do an appraisal, you do uh, an assessment of the the inventory, the resources that are on the ground, and then uh, you come up with uh, a value and and you then restrict the property with a a document that's recorded uh, against the title of the property. So nuts and bolts speaking, it's pretty boring, but again, at the end, it's it, it, it does some pretty magnificent things for society and for the landowners that choose to, yeah, uh, to conserve their property. And so, just an example of that that I think will help people visualize it. Say you have a ranch that's located, you know, outside of a some a resort area. It's thirty five hundred acres. Generally, you can subdivide a ranch into thirty five acre parcels without ever having to go through any sort of county approval. Mm-hmm. So, in theory that landowner or somebody could buy that ranch they could cut it up they could buy it for one price and then cut it up into a hundred smaller 35 acre ranches and then sell each one of those and so what you've done at that point is you've wiped you know one big working ranch off the map and put a bunch of um, you know 35 acre parcels spread throughout what used to be productive land and so what the easement does is it Depending on how restrictive you want it, you could you could possibly say you can never subdivide the land. So all of a sudden, that thirty five acre thirty five hundred acres is going to stay one big block of land forever. Right, and and when you think about these big ranches and getting subdivided, it's not only the impact to food production; it's the impact to wildlife and habitat fragmentation. Uh, the movement of wildlife through their migration corridors is impacted. Every time we put a structure in their path or yep. I- impede uh, what's always been an open place, now you're forcing uh, wildlife to to change their habits and their uh, in, in, in what they do. Um, on top of that, you're taking land out of out of production and and reducing our ability and our capacity grow food and fiber mm-hmm. uh, and, and doing a lot of other things as well messing with water systems and and aquifer recharge and, mm-hmm. and all of these things that are pretty hot topics in Colorado and around the west uh, today but from the mechanics standpoint uh, what we try to do at the Cattlemen's Agricultural Land Trust in particular is, is keep those large ranches in single units mm-hmm. uh, there's 
occasions where there may be a need to allow somebody the right to, to divide it once. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by and large, we want to keep those single units uh, together uh, to preserve the integrity of the landscape and, and the land itself. Yeah, and then you, you mentioned water. I think that's another point that's important to stress is, you know, in, in certain basins, uh, what's happening is the these municipalities from Denver and, you know, all the way down to Colorado Springs, Pueblo, they're, they're experiencing this huge population boom and we need more water. And so the only way they can get water is to buy it from agricultural properties up in the mountains and then transfer it down. And so basically what you're, you end up doing is drying up what used to be productive hay meadows, um, you know, kind of messing with water resources, which affects wildlife. It affects you know, a whole host of issues. And that's another thing that your easement, you can do through your easements if, if the landowner chooses, is lock that water in to the land forever. So it can never be uh, severed from the land. And I think that's really important. I mean, we could we could talk for hours about that. And actually, I'm going to have um, Spencer from WaterSage on hopefully the next episode. And so we'll, we'll get into the, the details of water rights. Um, so I guess another question would be, so I, people understand that these ranches produce, produce food, produce beef, um, grain, and they protect water. But say, say there's a ranch, you know, up out in far eastern Colorado, wide open, just wide open, dry land, uh, far away from any sort of development. Why should somebody, let's say a, a vegan who lives in Lodo in downtown Denver, why should they care about the work that the Cattlemen's Land Trust is doing? Why is it important to them? Well, I think it's the, again, the preservation of the balance. Um, but it's also these native grasslands that you see in eastern Colorado, uh, and sometimes people wonder what the value of prairies in eastern Colorado really are. You know, you hear people comment about how boring the drive is on I-70 towards Kansas. But you get off the road and you start experiencing the magic of the prairie and understanding uh, the important role that prairies play in biodiversity and in our natural ecological systems Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden this whole new world opens up to you and you see the importance of of keeping these prairies intact Mm -hmm. and in eastern colorado uh, oftentimes what we see is uh, the threat is conversion of grasslands to farm and Mm cropland and some people may say well isn't that what we want? We want to be able to grow more food uh, on these cro- uh, on these pro- on these lands. And and there, are, what you have to understand is that there is land that that where it makes sense to grow uh, to grow crops like corn and wheat mm-hmm. and those things. And there is land that doesn't really make sense to do that. Eastern Colorado, in a lot of places, isn't really a fertile place for the production of of commodity crops Mm -hmm. and it's really more meant for grazing of livestock Mm -hmm. and so it's really important that we don't make the mistakes of the past 
particularly around the Dust Bowl area, where mm-hmm. we all of a sudden are converting all of this native pasture land into into cropland, and we saw what happened. Mm-hmm. You see the soil starting to blow, and we end up in the Dust Bowl, mm-hmm. and the reason for that is that that land really wasn't meant to grow commodity crops like corn and wheat. It was meant to pasture livestock, to pasture buffaloes, stuff like that. That's what grasslands were intended for. And and so when we talk about eastern Colorado and the importance for people in urban corridors uh, to understand why it's important to, to conserve those properties, it's for biodiversity reasons, it's for the integrity of our entire ecological system. And I think those are things that people, while they may be uh, hard to, to fully grasp, uh, I think people understand the importance of of responsibility to the environment and, mm-hmm. and ecological systems play into that and, and keeping them intact in the way that they're meant to be is, is critically important. No, I, I, I agree with that completely. And I think, you know, a lot of people... There are plenty of people that live here in the United States that are really, really concerned about the rainforest being bulldozed or burned in Brazil. And in a way, we've got the same thing going on here in eastern eastern Colorado, um, except it's not the, the the lush rainforest, but it's it is a biodiverse prairie. And uh, you know, if you if you read your history, you see what happens when when people start destroying that that area, and it's happening you know, 100 miles east of Denver. But a lot of people don't understand the importance uh, of that land. Have you ever read The um, the Worst Hard Time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. You know, when they, uh, you know, they start plowing the plowing the fields up, plowing up the grassland, and next thing you know, there's... Uh, and I think that that book is a perfect example of just how uh, people can be tricked into... into believe in anything you know you had these these people who had never even really been out here before talking about if you if you plow the the ground the the rain will come and this kind of thing and and it's it's very clear that that land is is meant for grazing and it always has been um not meant for water intensive crops um and so that that brings me to another point that i think is really interesting is you know, a lot of people don't. A lot of people think that they're that cattle ranching and um, caring for the environment are kind of on two opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and you know, one of the things I've found really interesting over the last few years that I've started, re- I've read a ton about, and I've you know found to be a, a really interesting thing that a lot of people don't understand is how grazing is is really necessary in this part of the world for these grassland ecosystems to thrive and when you take grazing livestock off of the grass it it suffers and it dies can you speak to that a little bit well grazing has always been a component of of the grassland prairies that we see in the in the west uh it started with the buffalo and the bison Mm -hmm. and uh as they were moved out then the cattle came in and they serve similar role that the bison and the buffalo played in in uh in helping uh these 
ecosystems grow and thrive, and mm-hmm. uh, they are a critical component to um, to the success of of these ecosystems, and and that's why when we talk about cropland uh, conversion, you will never see or rarely see a family who's been in agriculture for more than 100 years say that it's a good idea to convert uh, a majority of these lands, Mm -hmm. uh, these prairie lands, into commodity crop lands. Uh, The folks that have been out there and they understand the cycles understand that these are... These are grazing lands, and that's what they're for. And 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 so, the proper management of of these lands require uh, livestock grazing on them. Yeah, there's another great book. Sorry, I keep talking about books, but um, and I'll put I'll put links to all these books in the notes below on the webpage. But there's the book that kind of changed my thinking on that, or opened my eyes to the thinking on that. Is called For the Love of Land. It's by this guy, a guy named Jim Howell. And uh, he he talks about how you know even before bison were on the plains, you know back you know, hundred thousand years ago or more, I, I think somewhere in that range, there were even camels in North America, and uh, all these grazing animals, and they would come through and you know graze the the grass, and then they would use their hooves. They, the hooves would drive the the seeds into the grass, into the ground to replant. And so the grasses evolved over, as all these different species of grazing mammals kind of came and went, the grasses were constantly evolving to be grazed, to be trampled, so that the seeds are replanted, and then to regrow. And um, he has some studies in this book that are unbelievable where there'll be a private ranch next to um, a national park where there's no grazing allowed in a fairly dry grassland area. And on, he's got a picture of it in the book. And on, on the side of the fence where the uh, is private land is grazed, the grass is healthy and green and lush. And then on the other side of the fence where they haven't allowed grazing, it's all dead because it, it kind of grows to the point and needs to be grazed, and then it kills itself. And so I think that's um, obviously there's there's some nuance in there, and, and it's not completely one way or the other. But I think it's a it's a pretty compelling story that most people don't understand. Most people think that for a, a property to be taken back to its wild state, it, you need to take all animals off, no humans, nothing, when in reality, the cows are exactly what we need, unless somebody's planning to reintroduce bison. We're not all Ted Turner, right? <laughs> um, so can you talk a little bit about just Colorado and the role Colorado plays in the conservation world because Colorado really is on the leading edge of conservation in the country and they've, they've uh, got a lot of incentives that are progressive and almost, almost experimental in, in trying new ways to make conservation work. Can you talk a little bit about just Colorado conservation and why it's a great place to be in your business? Well, I think Colorado is defined by its natural beauty and so ensuring that that natural resources that defines the state are maintained is critical to the state and so it's always led us as a people uh, to think about these types of issues and and so Colorado is a leader in conservation in many different forms it's a leader in land conservation for sure and some of the incentives that allow it to be a 
a leader across the country include the establishment of Great Outdoors Colorado mm -hmm. in the 90s that took lottery proceeds and put them towards parks, open spaces, trails. Uh, GOCO also helped schools, mm -hmm. uh, but getting people outdoors, which is what we're known for, mm -hmm. uh, to the state conservation easement tax credit, which is a credit against an individual state income tax liability they can use dollar for dollar for donating a conservation easement. And there's a formula that the states created uh, to, to, uh, to value and, the, and create those, those credits generated by the easement. Uh, but the incentive allows landowners then to monetize their uh, their land base by selling a or donating a conservation easement, and that is a great incentive because so often our agricultural producers are what people define as land rich but cash poor. Uh, and so being able to generate cash from your land without selling it uh, is super critical to helping folks pay down debt, expand, do different things, diversify income streams. Keep it in the family. Keep it in the family. Yeah. Uh, do all these things that they want to do to ensure that they can continue in agriculture as a, as a career and as a future. Yeah, I think, I think it's pretty neat to be, to, to watch Colorado trying to, you know, some of it has been, trial and error you know some things don't work but then i think what's cool about colorado is they're out there trying new things and trying to figure out a way to to make conservation work as well as possible for as many people as possible um so i guess for you personally um how did you decide to get into this this line of work what's your connection to conservation or agriculture or both so my family on both my dad and mom's side were involved in agriculture dating back to the 1800s. Mm -hmm. My mom's side of the family settled in the Republican River Valley in south central Nebraska mm -hmm. and been dry land farmers. And my dad's side of the family ranched in the upper Arkansas River Valley near Salida and then up in the northern parts of the San Luis Valley uh, since the 1860s, 1870s. Where did they come Where did they come from? They came from Missouri. Which was already the frontier back then. Right, exactly. <laughs> so agriculture, the land, it's always been a part of me. Uh, and my dad became a range conservationist, worked for the Bureau of Land Management mm -hmm. for his entire career. Uh, but I grew up going out and doing range transects, uh, spending time in trailers in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming in the Red Desert uh, with my dad, mm -hmm. um, and going to the farm, yep. and going to the ranch, and learning uh, about uh, agriculture, and learning about conservation, and how being an agricultural producer uh, you are a true steward of the land. Mm -hmm. uh, those beef council commercials that you hear on during Rockies games talking about uh, ranchers and farmers being the true stewards of the land is, is absolutely true. And it's true because their economic livelihoods depend upon it. Yep. You know, if they're not good stewards of the land, they're not going to make uh, a living. 
and yep. they're not going to give their families uh, an opportunity to be successful either. And so I think people need to understand that these folks are out there doing uh, amazing work each and every day mm-hmm. to ensure that we have food on our table. And to do that, they've got to take great care of the environment and the land. And that's a really important message for people to understand. Yep. That's like that article I just wrote for the uh, for the newsletter, Boomers and Stickers. I'll link to that, too. Um, so, I mean, as a when you were coming out of college, when you were coming out of college, um, you know, why, what drove you to, to want to be, I guess, of service versus going to work for a bank? And for people who don't understand, Eric is unbelievably driven and has more on his plate than anybody. He's got two, he's got a regular college degree, two advanced degrees, one that he earned while he had a brand new baby he goes 100 miles an hour. He never stops. If he was an investment banker, he'd be rolling in dough, and yet he chooses to use his brains and his talents for the the greater good. And so why? Well, I think you've got to find what drives you in life uh, to be happy. Yep. Uh, for me, it's not necessarily a monetary gain that drives me. It's intellectual stimulation. It's the ability to have an impact mm-hmm. uh, and, and to make uh, make the place we live better mm-hmm. uh, and, and to kind of uh, pay homage to the heritage uh, of my family and to the people that I grew up admiring, which is my grandfather mm-hmm. um, and my dad. And uh, so for me to have a really rewarding, rich, rewarding life, uh, you know, having, doing something that I loved doing something that gave me a chance to do something new each and every day uh, was really important. And I found that in the nonprofit sector. I found it at Cattlemen's Land Trust. Mm -hmm. And I think people find that in many different ways. But for me, I found it here. And I think what's great about the nonprofit sector for for folks out there that, that may be thinking about it as a career path is it gives you an opportunity Uh, to get involved in really important decisions almost from day one. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you go work for the for-profit sector, uh, you go in at an entry-level position, and it's a long time before you're making really important decisions or managing people in Mm -hmm. most cases. Whereas you come to work for a nonprofit and you're thrown into doing just about everything Mm -hmm. day one. It gives you a lot of really unique and really cool experiences that I think if somebody wanted to transfer to the for-profit sector, they'd be really successful because mm-hmm. you, you kind of get over the fear of, of making a decision that may not be entirely accurate because you're forced to make decisions every day. And so, sure, some are going to be really good and some you're going to make mistakes. And we all learn from our mistakes much more than we learn from our successes. And so... You know, for me, I think nonprofits are a great uh, proving ground mm-hmm. for people. Uh, I think you can parlay the skills you learn into a great for-profit career if somebody wanted to do it. But for me, you know, I found a place where I'm really happy. I'm thriving and and challenged each and every day, and that and and work with great people. Yeah, and I would think that it would 
probably probably be hard for you to work as hard as you do if you didn't love it. You know, if you hated it, if you were just doing it for money and you hated it, uh, it would be very, you'd be a re- pretty weird guy if you were able to work as hard as you do and hate it. I mean, it's, it's clear that you love what you do. Because um, it's not, a, Eric not only works here at Cattlemen's, but he's involved in just a, a host of other, um, you know, volunteer efforts as well. We can talk about that later. But um, one one thing that I think may be helpful for people listening is you and I both get a lot of calls and emails and we trade introductions back and forth from people, you know, just getting out of college or maybe a year or two out of college who are, who want to be in the conservation world and they want to jump in. And like a lot of, you know, a lot of people want to do that. And, uh, you know, unfortunately the, the opportunities are limited just because the, the, um, you know, there, there's a certain number of land trusts and, it's not a, a bloated industry. It's a fairly lean industry. And so if you were um, giving, you know, can you just share some advice that you give to either people in college that have the goal of going into land conservation or people that maybe have gone out in the world, done something, and realized that land conservation is their calling and they want to get into it? Well, the best advice I can give is is to network, to reach out and meet people that are doing that work and listen uh, meet up with them for coffee or a beer uh, and just listen to their story uh, because it's so much in today's day and age about who you know more so than than what you know mm-hmm. and I think that's even more so in, in the land conservation industry um, we tend to recycle uh, folks uh, quite often and so getting in breaking in is really hard and so it's really critical that you just hustle each and every day to meet as many people as you possibly can, listen to their story, and and then figure out how you can connect your skill sets to the skill sets that are needed uh, to advanced conservation efforts uh, for that organization that you may be wanting to work for. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just super critical. I'd rather hire... Uh, somebody that didn't have a, a natural resources or an ag degree but was willing to hustle, understood the importance of listening, was genuinely interested in wanting to be successful because those people are going to be the ones that come out and and just are all-stars. Uh, you don't have to know the technical elements to yeah. be successful. I When I started at Cattlemen's, in 2008, I didn't even know what a conservation easement was. Mm-hmm. Really didn't. And it was just a matter of wanting it and wanting to hustle and, and do the best I possibly can. And I, I truly believe that's what differentiates the truly successful people from the people that are just there kind of filling a space mm-hmm. is how much do you want to hustle? Mm-hmm. And if you're willing to hustle, I think just about anybody smart enough to do just about anything they they want, especially in land conservation, um, and, and so that's my advice: is 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 hustle, get to know as many people as you can, be genuine, and be willing to listen. Yeah, I agree with all that. And when I moved to Colorado, I you know I, I started going to the conservation events. I'd been doing a lot of business in Wyoming and Montana and Idaho, but not all that much in Colorado. I didn't really know that many people. And, you know, the the thing that I found so refreshing about the land conservation community is it's all extremely smart, 
hardworking, focused people, and they're all really friendly, <laughs> which is which is rare um, in, in some business circles. Um, and they, they want to help. And so I think, you know, you and I do recommend or do introductions back and forth all day long. And I think it's it's rare to find somebody in the conservation world here in Colorado that wouldn't go out for coffee or beer and share some share some knowledge. And I think that's that's really the the key. Um, you know, for somebody that's in college and maybe um, you know doesn't really have any work experience, would you recommend that they start the networking while they're in college, or would you say uh, you know is there would you recommend being an intern? Um, I know that some of your staff here had started as interns. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Interning is great. Um, volunteering is even better. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to prove yourself to any organization, uh, go volunteer and do a really good job volunteering. That's yep. um, hard um, because you're not getting paid and yep. you're spending time doing something you're not getting paid for. But if you go and everybody is looking in the nonprofit world, especially is looking for volunteers, quality volunteers. And if you're willing to do that and spend that time volunteering, it will pay dividends, immense dividends in the future. And I have had so much respect for the people that are willing to do that because it shows that hustle. Mm-hmm. And I would start networking while you're in college. Uh, I think that's what undergrad largely is about, is, is building a foundation of, of skills, but mm-hmm. largely the foundation that you want to focus on is how to deal with people. Mm-hmm. Because regardless of what business you're going into, it's a people. Mm-hmm. It's all about people. And if you can't work well with other people, you're not going to be successful. So if you come out of undergrad with anything, it's how to how to deal with people. Yep. And and with a big network of people that you can call upon to to help you get ahead. Mm-hmm. I agree with all that. When I was in college, I had a I got an internship at Merrill Lynch during my senior year, and somebody told me I needed to go to the career services office. Like that's what you're supposed to do when you're a senior. And I went, and the guy told me uh, I should quit my internship and just exclusively focus on studying really hard. And obviously, I didn't take that advice and I had a job you know the day I left school um, I don't understand that but I, I agree with your your advice that focus on the people um, so maybe we get back to cattlemen's uh, for just another minute so Eric took over as executive director when about a, about a year ago is that right June of 2016-15 and so um, Chris West was here before and had been here 15 years and did a unbelievable job uh, taking this place from basically a, a early stage idea and got the momentum going and now you know 400,000 acres later uh, here we are and so you know Eric as I mentioned just finished his MBA he's um, we're about the same age and he's got some new ideas about land conservation in general um, and, and different ideas about land conservation with the Cattlemen's Land Trust and so I was wondering if you you know, we had talked before uh, extensively about some of the financial planning aspects of, of land trust. And so I was wondering if you could just talk about that for a minute. Well, I think the probably the biggest issue facing the future of land conservation and, and maybe even nonprofits in general is financial sustainability. Uh, nonprofits don't tend to attract the 
MBAs with the finance degree. They don't attract the, the undergrads with the finance degree. We don't typically pay well enough to, to attract those folks either. And so what typically will happen is, is that uh, you get somebody who may have taken a couple accounting courses in as your, your finance uh, person and and that uh, that doesn't lead to necessarily the best decision making when it comes to finances in uh, in financial uh, sustainability and so I think what we're doing here at Cattlemen's is really interesting because we're taking that understanding that we can't necessarily attract uh, all star financial professionals to work on our staff but what we can do is is find folks in the community that have a love for land conservation who also have those skills and those expertise and have them help us and assist us in developing financial models financial forecasts uh, and, and start thinking about the future and planning for the future to ensure that we're around as we say we will be uh, in perpetuity and to be the partner with our with our landowners and their successor landowners in the future. And so for us, organizational sustainability, financial sustainability is, is really critical. Um, we're spending a lot of time, a lot of effort, uh, a lot of staff resources on ensuring uh, that we're putting systems in place and, and, and getting the finances in a place where we can uh, sustain the organization in the long term. And I think more groups, both nonprofits and, and land trusts in particular, need to be focusing on what does it really take financially to operate an organization 50, 100, 150 years from now? Mm-hmm. And that's a really hard question ponder, but there's really bright people out there that, that think about these things from a financial perspective and can help you, and, and, and you can turn a lot of those people into to great resources, but also great donors, and for a nonprofit, that's great. And then, surprisingly, sometimes what will happen is you start doing these things, and then all of a sudden, the rock star financial folks are attracted mm-hmm. to come work for you. Uh, we were fortunate at Cattlemen's to be able to hire a Kellogg MBA with a CPA to be our chief financial officer and I think it was largely a testament to uh, we were sophisticated enough in our financials uh, acumen now uh, to attract folks like that and we're putting a focus on it and we also offer, nonprofits offer this great uh, this great value to folks and that they can make a difference like you and I were talking about and they can find a passion, something that they're passionate for and they can do more than just make money. They can make money and do amazing things uh, that benefit society and benefit uh, all kinds of different things. And, and, and oftentimes nonprofits offer a lot of flexibility uh, for yeah. folks. And I think that's, uh, that's what's, what's neat about what we're doing is, is, is understanding our limitations, finding the, skill sets that we need to fill our gaps in our skill sets, either through volunteers, uh, independent contractors, or 
in some cases through uh, adding additional staff with different skill sets than what we would typically be looking for to our to our staff. Well, I think it's worth noting, you know, really, really emphasizing the point that the you know when you put when you conserve a piece of land, it is conserved forever, you know, or until the revolution <laughs> comes and the United States no longer exists and the laws don't exist. I mean, it is it is going to be forever, and so it's extremely important that land trust fi- you know plan their finances accordingly. And it's you know it's really hard to think forever. It's hard to think ten years out, much less fifty, hundred, hundred fifty. Um, but I think, you know, what you guys are doing here is it's, it hasn't really been done before on a large scale in the concert, in the conservation community nationwide, which in some ways is, is kind of amazing that nobody is, has done this yet. And I think it puts, I know the end goal is, is to conserve land, but I really do think it, it puts cattlemen's, um, up on, on a different level from land trusts that choose not to go through that planning process. You know, from my perspective, if I have a landowner who's considering placing part of uh, the ranch under easement, and there's cattlemen's or, or a certain land or another land trust who has gone through the financial planning process, and another one who just says, "Oh well, I think we have enough money. We got a few million bucks in the bank. That ought to do it," but not be able to back it up. I'm going to go with the the one that's done the planning every time, and I think. You know, I think land trusts owe that to their donors um, and everybody, donors, landowners, everybody. Um, so anyway, good work on that. Thank you. Um, let me see. So back to – are you good on time? Mm-hmm. Um, back to conservation in Colorado. If, if there's one thing you could change about conservation in Colorado or conservation in the West, you know, if you could – you know, 10 years from now, have one thing different, what would that be? The way we value conservation easements in particular, we value them based on the elimination of development. And by development, I mean the uh, ability to essentially turn a property into the next Highlands Ranch or Lone Tree or one of those new subdivisions that we see popping up all over uh, the metro area. I think valuing conservation easements by eliminating development kind of to some degree perverts what we're trying to do. I think we as a society have evolved enough to understand the true value of, uh, of conserving uh, property for the ability to continue to grow food and fiber, for wildlife habitat, for water conservation and water resources, all these other things, and that we need to start figuring out a way to value conservation easements uh, using uh, what we're protecting or what we're conserving, better word, instead of what we're trying to eliminate. Mm -hmm. And so if I could change anything, it would be figuring out a way to... uh, to assign a value, a proper value, to the to the conservation of the resource that you're looking to conserve. So, for example, those ranches we were talking about in eastern Colorado, they, if you value them according to the, the current model uh, for development potential, there's not much development threat out in the middle of eastern Colorado, so there's not much conservation value according to the state. But 
there's a ton of value there because you're protecting an entire ecosystem. So you're just saying that that we need to figure out a way to place a quantitative value on that ecosystem or, or and, and other um, other things like that. Is Absolutely. That right? I think you can... Do you think that'll happen? Well, I think you're seeing some of it already. You're seeing the carbon market in California. Uh, you're starting to see some species uh, uh, exchanges. Uh, Colorado's about to launch the Colorado Habitat Exchange system, which will uh, allow landowners who are uh, doing uh, doing things that that keep habitat intact for threatened or endangered species, mm-hmm. uh, allow them to get compensated for doing those things, and not uh, and and not impacting those species. So we have this opportunity to to meet a number of different goals that we have as a society that we've determined are important. Uh, by compensating folks for doing for doing those things, for mm-hmm. achieving those things, for keeping habitat uh, for species like the sage grouse yep. uh, intact, mm-hmm. um, and and so I think you're starting to see some of these alternative uh, compensation methods come in to play, and I think that's exciting. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in Colorado long term, but it has real opportunity, I think, to to achieve a lot of uh, the environmental goals that we as a society believe are important, but also uh, to keep family agriculture strong uh, in the West, and I think that's, that's really important. I agree with all that. Um, so now I just have a few more questions. They're kind of quick questions. Just wanted to go through them. Um, and do you have any favorite books, or do you have any books that you recommend to people that are interested in conservation, or, or not even that, just just favorite books in general? Well, I think my favorite book would be A River of Doubt oh, about yeah. the last journey uh, adventure, I guess, of Theodore Roosevelt down uh, to the Amazon. Yeah, and, that's uh, one of the best. Phenomenal book, uh, great read especially for those that like Theodore Roosevelt. Um, you know, Atlas Shrugged is a, yeah. uh, one of my favorites. I think it's a different way of thinking that most yeah. people aren't, aren't really uh, presented, and I think it's an important... Uh, I think people need to diversify kind of their thought process to be really strong leaders, to be great uh, uh, mentors, to be just well-rounded people you need to have Mm -hmm. many different perspectives so alice is a great one Mm -hmm. uh as well for me um and then from a management perspective i don't think there's anything better than uh the classic dale carnegie how to win friends and influence people those would probably be my top three those are all good especially river doubt i think uh warren buffett I think it's the Dale Carnegie book that he studied that when he was kind of an awkward teenager because he felt like he couldn't make any friends and he just studied it and completely focused all his energy on implementing the those uh, the, the kind of bullet points and what do you know? It works. Um, do you have any favorite documentaries? Hmm. Think about that for a second. Weren't you in one? 
I wasn't. Losing the West? Uh, losing the West. I haven't seen I, that. I wouldn't say that's one of my favorites, but uh, <laughs> that may just be because I'm in it. Um, <laughs> this won't be your favorite podcast, then. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's a, there's a great documentary out right now on issues that are affecting the West uh, called Unbranded. Oh, that's so good. Which is a really good one. That, that I want to get that guy on, this, on the podcast. Oh, I can help you with that. I, I really do. He seems uh, like an interesting guy. So my counterpart in Texas runs Texas Ag Land Trust. Her son was in one of the lead characters in the... Which one was he? He was the one that uh, at the very end... Stopped did, like a yeah. mile short. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. But Bill it, Bowman was telling me he, he knew he met somebody... Well, it, was it must have been the Blair. same guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, great, uh, a great take on. I uh, love that movie. Wild horse issues and. Range and your father issues. worked for that that particular part of the BLM, right? My dad was the program lead for the wild horse department for BLM uh, for the entire country for oh, in the. Uh, about 2007 to 2010, 2011, somewhere in there. Very cool. So, and I, I take his opinion pretty seriously about yeah. that issue. And he said it was one of the most well-rounded uh, documentaries of the wild horse issues that he'd seen. So. I just saw it the other day, and I've been meaning to ask you about it because I knew you could tell me how well if it was done well or not. But I, I thought that was great. My, the lady who used to cut my hair when I lived in Jackson Hole, she's in there. Remember when they stopped in Jackson Hole and they get the haircut? That was the lady who used to cut my <laughs> hair. <funny. laughs> um, all right, a few more, and then we're done. Um, if you could sp- narrow it down to one, what's your favorite location in the West? It can be a specific ranch, town, a trail, a lake, you know, any a top of a mountain, anywhere. Where, If you had to think of one special place that you really like. I know it's hard. I was trying to answer this question myself, and I couldn't do it. Well, it's not all that hard for me. There's a, a ranch called the Elkhead Ranch. Uh-huh. It's north of Hayden, Colorado, in Route County, that I think is is a spiritual place. And every time I go there, I get this this uh, overwhelming spiritual feeling and, and just a magical landscape, a magical place uh, that is absolutely by far and away um, my favorite place uh, that I've ever been. Um, and uh, there's great history uh, surrounding that place, uh, some great and unique Western history. Mm-hmm. It's a great book written about that area uh, that became a New York Times bestseller a couple of years ago. What's it called? called? Nothing Daunted, about a couple of East Coast teachers Oh, you told me about that. Traveled west in the early 1900s to teach at a little one-room schoolhouse in the middle of nowhere in Colorado, and uh, just a fascinating story. Um, one of those stories that the truth seems larger than uh, yeah than yeah than it could possibly be, and um, but a fantastic story, a fantastic place, and one of those places that should always remain open and fortunately the landowners in that valley have came together and and conserved it that's a pretty unique and cool story to tell very cool um if you could recommend one hike trip activity for somebody vacationing in the west somebody who's sitting in north carolina right now planning a trip or wants to come out what would you say is if there's one place they could go 
That is a tough question. Yeah, there. I don't know. I don't know the answer. <laughs> um, there's so many great places, but I think you, you know, for for me, I think if you got to get off the beaten path, mm-hmm. uh, stop wherever you are in the West, mm-hmm. talk to the locals. Yep. Uh, there's so many great public lands uh, that are out here. Uh, if you stop and you talk to the locals and and listen, mm-hmm. uh, they'll give you some good tips to get off the beaten path. And I think anytime you can get off the beaten path and away from people and experience the unconfined, uh, unconfined nature of nature, um, yeah. that you're going to have a great experience. And so, for me to say give advice about one particular place I don't think would would necessarily be fair because there's so many great places in the West and I yep. think you can find it in any of our western states and it's just it's being willing to be a little adventurous it's being willing to listen and uh, and if you do those things you'll never be disappointed and I think the the take home message is just get people outside um, yeah get people to experience nature get people to experience the west and and in its wide open spaces and 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 if you do i think will inspire a lot more people uh to do some really cool things i agree with all that it's very hard to pick one spot um and i do think even if you can't even if you could tell one spot that's only the beginning you know you go to like i love the arkansas river valley especially around, you know, between uh, Buena Vista and Leadville. And every time I go there, I've been going there for, I mean, the first time I went there was when I was in high school, and I learned something new every time I go um, and just appreciate it more and more, love it more and more. Um, all right, we're wrapping up now. If you could make one request of people listening, what would that be? It could be check out more of the check out the cattleman's website come to a colorado ag network meeting come to the cclt conference just something that you think uh, a person listening would would benefit by doing well i definitely think it's worth going to forevercolorado.org mm-hmm. which is our website i'll and, link to that uh and just looking at what we're doing and and then i think it's it's caring caring about the West caring about Colorado, which I think we all do. It's why we moved here. Uh, but if we don't, as a as a people, if we don't take great interest in it, it could change dramatically, and it could change not necessarily for the good. And so, caring about these issues, even though they may seem abstract and distance from your life, and if you're in a city or if you have no connection to agriculture. Uh, that's not true because we all have a connection in some form or fashion. And so caring and taking an interest uh, in the work that land conservation is doing and the work that agricultural producers are doing, I think, is is critically important. I think it's the one thing I would ask for everybody to do is, is try to understand uh, and, and take an interest and care because... If we do, then we're, I think, guaranteeing a great future and a prosperous future for, for Colorado. Perfect. I think that's a good good place to end it. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. That was awesome. Thanks, Ed. Bye. So that is it. First episode in the books. 
I appreciate your time and thanks so much for spending the last hour listening to this show. Thanks to Mountain Khakis for their support. I really appreciate that as well. Um, If you have any ideas, comments, questions, thoughts on future shows, you can reach out to me on my website, mountainandprairie.com. All my contact info is there, all the links to all the social media channels. We'll have links to anything that Eric mentioned, any of his favorite books, documentaries, all that kind of stuff. will be in the show notes. So again, thanks for spending the last hour with me. I appreciate it, and I'll look forward to future episodes. Bye. Oh!